0: Welcome to the Judgment Enforcement Hour with Joe Dickerson. In our program, we reveal the unrealistic expectations of many creditors and the schemes of debtors and fraudsters that are nearly as old as man's time on earth. Now, here is your host, Joe Dickerson, with the new processes to outsmart the bad guys.
1: Hello, Mr. and Ms. America. This is Joe Dickerson, your host for the Judgment Enforcement Hour. Uh, as each week we will remind you again that 80% of the civil judgments in the United States are never collected and we believe that's just not right. So the purpose of our program is to keep our listeners and our clients out of that 80% of failures uh, and uh, get them over into the 20% of people that actually get their money. So each week we try to bring you some new information that will help you get into the 20% and stay there uh, for yourself and or your clients. Uh, Last week, we discussed the the, (coughs) the basics and beyond for effective judgment enforcement and went into some of the beyond processes and the heavy weapons that are used. Today, we're going to be discussing applying extraordinary remedies in judgment enforcement. We'll cover receiverships, alter egos, break orders, which we used to call in Colorado writs of assistance that came from the old Elizabethan law, but uh, as things are getting modernized, now they're known as break orders, a wonderful tool that uh, can be used pretty well around the United States. But before we get into that, I'm obligated to tell you that this information is not intended to be legal advice. and may not be used as legal advice. Legal advice must be tailored to the specific circumstances for each case. Every effort has been made to assure that this information is up to date. It is not intended to be a full or exhaustive explanation of the law in any area, nor should it be used to replace the advice of your own legal counsel. Any opinions expressed are strictly the opinion of the speakers today. And now we're going to be... Uh, joined shortly by Ben Harris. Uh, before we do that, I want to tell the listeners out there that should you have some questions or comments on the show today, anything that concerns you about the process, feel free to give us a call. We'd love to discuss that with you on the air. Our call-in number is 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Oh. Ben, we're going to be talking about the uh, extraordinary benefit or remedies in judgment enforcement. And I want to tell the audience before you start that uh, this process really works, folks. Uh, Ben and his staff have been using these type processes uh, on cases. In fact, they're using them right now uh, to enforce significant judgments for my clients and several of them, in fact. And uh, I would encourage you to listen to them, learn from them and then get them applied uh, so that you can be in the 20% that are successful in enforcing your judgments. Ben, if you would, please give us a little background on yourself and your firm and the areas in which your firm work, and then we'll get into the subject matter of the day.
2: Sure, Joe, thank you first very much. It's as I've told you many times off the air and I'll tell you now on the air, it's just a pleasure to work with you and and your clients uh who uh, are obviously seeking to have judgments enforced and I think your your show and your topics are are very timely and you made a a very good point which is that so many judgments go uncollected. A judgment is just a piece of paper saying that someone owes the plaintiff money. It, just, it is not a. Uh, it is not a guarantee that that money is going to be collected. So, just a little bit about our firm. Uh, our firm is Jones Walker LLP. It is a firm of slightly under four hundred lawyers, based in New Orleans, but spread around the country, literally from Miami to Phoenix, and then up to DC and New York. Principal areas of coverage uh geographically for us uh are florida georgia alabama mississippi louisiana and texas uh although uh the firm obviously does business in many many jurisdictions probably in every jurisdiction in the country uh and overseas uh the firm does just about everything uh, the very few areas that the firm does not do my area at the firm and my my group's area at the firm is judgment enforcement and debt collection and our practice is focused primarily, uh, it's based in Miami and, and, and focused primarily in Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas. We will go other places uh, to do that. We've done it from California to New York. So we've learned about uh, judgment enforcement and debt collection across this broad land of ours.
1: Ben, how many attorneys do you have on your staff that specialize in the creditors' rights and judgment enforcement area? I know you have a lot of people that help you and work in that area, but how many specialists do you have on your staff that work under your management?
2: Working directly in my group, 10 lawyers. And then obviously we draw on uh, the resources of a very large law firm and have many, many lawyers who work with us in our various jurisdictions. Wonderful.
1: Well... That's great. It's uh, good information to have. Uh, Why don't we just jump right into the subject matter here and talk first about uh, receiverships and the difference. I know most people that uh, think about receivers think about bankruptcy court. We're talking about a completely different use of receivers and a different process. So you want to explain that and then tell our clients uh, some of the benefits and processes involved therewith?
2: Certainly. Uh, First, just uh, at a very initial level, what a receiver is. A receiver is a person, sometimes a firm, but a person appointed by a court to take control either of a piece of property, which is usually the primary use, or of the entity that owns a particular piece of property. The right is usually, anyway, a contractual right. In other words, it is a right that will be found in a mortgage or in a promissory note running in favor of the creditor. And it is, it allows the creditor the remedy of having a court appoint a receiver, a person, to take control of the property, usually it's a cash-flowing piece of property like an apartment complex or some other sort of cash-flowing piece of property, to ensure that the cash flow is properly applied to uh, the debts and creditors of that particular piece of property so that the light bill is paid, vendors are paid, And then also that the property, the cash flow out of the property is used to pay the owner's legitimate debts, including judgment debts or debts on on loans. And it can be uh, also a right that is applied by a court as a remedy in favor of a judgment creditor, particularly where the debtor has shown a pattern or a proclivity to either hide assets in the entity that owns the property or in the property or to be skimming money, skimming the cash flow out of the property without paying the owner's legitimate debts. And so what a receiver does is come in and take control literally of the entire operation uh the collects the rents or whatever other debts or obligations are owed to the entity or to the property it, uh, it ensures that the property is well maintained uh, the receiver does ensure that the property is well maintained and then begins to apply the proceeds to pay debts including judgment debts and loan debts
1: all right, let me ask you, Ben, uh, in the case when this receiver is put in, he is not necessarily or is he uh, put there for the benefit of the judgment creditor that asked the court to place a receiver there, and second part of the question, um, does that receiver then uh, have access to all of the books and records of the company? And can he make that information available to the judgment creditor to help them prove previous fraudulent conveyances and other uh bad deals
2: yes the the uh that's an excellent question and the first the first uh part of that question has to do with uh who is the receiver working for well the receiver is an officer of the court, which means that he or she is not working directly for the judgment creditor or other creditor that sought the appointment. Uh, the, the receiver's client, so to speak, is the judge or the court, and the receiver is appointed. The receiver takes control of the books and records and makes an assessment of the property um, and pays all legitimate obligations and debts. Now, that includes, of course, the debts owed to the creditor who sought the appointment of the receiver, but it's not limited uh to that um and the in terms of the second part of your question, uh, which is can the receiver have um, provide information that will allow the uh creditors, the judgment creditor, or other creditor to identify fraudulent transfers that might be pursued? the answer is yes it's it's slightly indirect and mostly. Uh, the way that's done is that the order, the receiver is appointed by an order of the court that specifies the powers that the receiver is going to have. And the order will customarily, anyway, provide that the receiver make periodic reports to the court about the management of the property. So that, uh, the receiver, you know, particularly when he or she is initially, uh, appointed, will make an inventory, a sort of a forensic review of what has been happening at the property, and will identify misspending or misuse of funds in many cases. That will go into a report to the court that then can be used not only by the creditor uh, that sought the appointment of the receiver, but by really by anyone else, because it would be a, a public document. In terms of your question about access to the books and records, and the answer to that is yes, and this gets to a point that you and I have certainly discussed in the in the past and that is an important point for your listeners to remember. The receiver's powers come from the content of the order that appoints the receiver. The receiver has the powers that are in the order and no other powers. So... It is important in the drafting of the order, and many times courts will ask counsel in the case to prepare draft orders, not that the courts are just going to rubber stamp what counsel submits, but uh, they certainly counsel is provided with an opportunity to submit uh, draft orders in many cases uh, that lay out the powers that the creditor seeks for the receiver to have. And it is important to include uh as broad a scope of power for that receiver as the law permits. So not only access to books and records, but really everything that uh, an owner would need to be able to do to operate, a proper, uh, uh, operate the property properly, uh, including you know, certainly having keys made, I mean, literally things like that, taking control of all items of property. Uh, on the, uh, on the premises, uh, having the ability to consult with employees, particularly if it's an operation that has a number of employees. Uh, specifying all of those powers is very, very important. Obviously, books and records are probably the most important piece of that, uh, and certainly an essential component, but we've run into situations where, uh, a receivership order is not uh particularly broad we work in in one particular jurisdiction uh where a customary form receiver order that courts are used to uh, seeing is fairly short and does not go into. Uh, a lengthy specification of powers. And we learned, have learned in, in instances, uh, in that particular jurisdiction that we not, uh, use that form. It's not required. Uh, but rather have a lengthier form that specifies all the powers, uh, um, so that, for example, if someone is operating a property that, uh, hey, either has short-term rentals or is a hotel or a bed and breakfast or something like that, that the receiver has the ability, particularly if it's a franchise-type operation, to deal with the or as though he or she were the franchisee. And that is something that is important to be able to specify in a particular uh, case if, it, if it's needed. Uh, so things like that, making sure that the receiver has all the powers that he or she uh, might need to operate the property depending on its circumstances properly is, is very, very important.
1: Okay, let me uh, share with you uh, a story that you and I have not discussed. Uh, several years ago, I was uh, called by a gentleman who said that he had just been hired as the president of an oil company uh, in Dallas, and that a uh, receiver had been appointed uh, to take over the company, and the receiver hired him uh, to come in and run the company for the benefit of the uh, the receiver and everything. This was uh, a federal matter, and uh, it, the oil company had been owned by uh, two partners, one of whom died, and the surviving partner was accused of embezzling the widow of his partner out of her part of the funds from the company. So I went out and met with the president, and he said, Well, Joe, he said, I want you to be uh, my special assistant. And he said, this company has uh, 80 employees. I know that three of them are honest because that's me, my secretary who I brought with me, and my chief engineer who I brought with me. So we need to know about the other 77 people here and whether they need to stay or they need to go and what's going on in this company. I'm not suggesting they're all bad people. I'm saying I don't know what I have inherited, and I want you to help me sort that out. So uh, it was an interesting uh, process, to say the least, and I worked there for about – 10 months, and there were significant changes made, including immediately selling the, the corporate helicopter uh, <laughs> and a bunch of other things <laughs> that uh, were were not necessary for the day-to-day operation of that company, and then I got a strange phone call one day, and the gentleman on the other end said, uh, Mr. Dickerson, this is so-and-so, and I am uh, Assistant U.S. Attorney and I am working on a matter that involves your uh, company out there that you're working for. And I'm calling to ask you if I need to have you served with a subpoena or if you would be willing to come down and meet with me tomorrow. And I said, what time and what address? So I went down and met with him. And to make a long story short, he said, uh, the reason I called you down here is uh, the U.S. attorney has information that there may be less that an arm's length relationship between the trustee and the judge that appointed him. Therefore, I'm going to have to have all of your records and all of your reports for the time that you've been working out there. And I said, well, I guess in those circumstances, uh the only thing that I could do were you to serve me with a subpoena DT is to provide that to you. But short of that, I'm sure you understand that I work for the company, and my allegiance has to be to the president, but we'll help however we can. And uh, he said, certainly, uh, I'll have your subpoena tomorrow. And uh, so I went down to pick up my subpoena the next day, and I looked at it, and I said, now, as I understand, this is a draft of the subpoena, because the real one's going to be asking for this, this, and this, isn't it? And he said, yes, it is. So sure enough, the next day I went down and he had the final draft and we were able to assist them. And uh, anyhow, that was a a little turn on the receivership and uh, the work that can be done uh, beyond the normal. And I see that it's about 30 seconds before time for us to go to a break. So with no further ado, let us uh, go ahead and take that break and we'll be back in just two or three minutes.
0: Learn why 80% of civil money judgments are never enforced in the United States. Ensure that you have the best chance to actually recover your judgment and get the money the court awarded to you. Order a copy of Joe Dickerson's new book, Diagnostic and Prescriptive Judgment Enforcement. You can get your copy for just $24.95 with no shipping and handling costs. Call 303-974-5610 or order via email from Joe at FinancialForensicServices.com. That's 303-974-5610 or Joe at FinancialForensicServices.com. Did you know that 80% of civil judgments awarded to creditors are never collected? Be one of the 20% that successfully collects. Joe Dickerson is the nation's leading financial forensic expert. Contact Joe at 303-974-5610 or by email to Joe at FinancialForensicServices.com for a free consultation about your judgment enforcement needs. That's 303-974-5610 or Joe at Services.com for your free judgment enforcement initial consultation with Joe Dickerson. Contact him today.
1: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
0: You are tuned in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. To reach host Joe Dickerson or his guest this week, call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show.
1: Okay, Ben, I understand we have a caller that has been holding, so before we go back into uh, talking about our subject matter, let's bring in Brian from Illinois and see what Brian's uh, question is. Uh, Brian, are you there?
3: Yes, I am. Uh, Joe, thanks for having me on, and Ben, thanks for taking the time to help Joe with the show. Um, I I have a question, and it's a couple-of-part question, all revolving around a judgment out of the state of Missouri. Um, it's a fairly substantial judgment. There's been some fraudulent transfers involved with the debtor, but the debtor relocated after the entry of judgment to Texas um, into a house that they had previously and his wife, who's now deceased, had previously purchased. Now I have a copy of that deed of trust in front of me for the per, you know for that particular president. It in it that. I mentioned about particular is escrow clause. Um, it it states that you know it's a standard escrow clause for property taxes, community association fees, uh, mortgage insurance, and homeowner's insurance have to be deposited into this escrow account. Now I know on using just the property taxes as an example, the notice like uh, you know of of the amount due will not be sent out until October, and the taxes are not due until january thirty first so they're not actually payable until payable until that date so first question is is this escrow account owned you know are the funds in that escrow account owned by the debtor until such time as they become due and are paid and second, if they are owned by the debtor Can they be attached by levy or attachment or execution? And you know, if that's possible, who would be served? Would it be the entity that owns the the, the mortgage? Would it be their trustee or would it be the servicing company that that is administering the mortgage?
2: Hey, Ben, you want to take the first shot you at are. that? You and Brian, thanks very much uh, for your question. And uh, I want to make sure you, uh, at least on my end, you broke up just a little bit. So let me make sure that I've, I've got the, the facts uh, completely correctly here. Your judgment is in Missouri. Uh, have you domesticated it to Texas, in other words, uh, filed and registered the judgment in Texas already, or is that still to be done?
3: It is still to be done because there is another clause of Missouri law where if the debtor leaves the state, they lose any and all exemptions. That matter has to be put with the Missouri court first before the time there for full faith and credit quarters to take over from the Texas constitution's homestead exemption. So and, which I'll
2: get to in the second part of the question, um, Certainly. Uh, just a few uh, other, a few quick follow-ups. The, there is money, just so that I have it, the money is deposited in escrow, and that is for, what is the purpose of the, of the escrow? The
3: escrow specifically states that, let me read this to you, Borrower shall pay to lender on a day periodic payments are due under the note until the note is paid in full sums to provide for payment of amounts due for taxes and assessments uh, leasehold payments which doesn't apply premiums for any and all insurance required by the lender mortgage insurance premiums and then it goes on to include community community fees and it is a it is a, a, a subdivision and there are common area fees uh, so so there are you know my estimate on the escrow would be anywhere from six to twelve thousand sitting in escrow at any given time right. um, and where, the account
2: uh, where is the institution that is holding this escrow money where where is it located
3: and that's and that was part of my question There is a real estate investment trust that purchased the mortgage from Fannie Mae their trustee is a national bank and that Bank has employed a third-party service mortgage servicing company in another state.
2: Welcome to modern <laughs> modern lending and modern <laughs> debt collection. That's as a very customary problem. Um, the uh, the funds. Just one other one other follow-up question. The funds that comprise the escrow were they funds that were lent? In other words, the institution, instead of simply providing them to your debtor, uh, deposited them into its own escrow account or or into this escrow account pending payment for taxes and these other purposes, or was this money that originated with your debtor, or do you know?
3: These are, according to the deed of trust, which I have in front of me, um, they are additional payments in addition to his monthly mortgage payment that are paid into the escrow pending the receipt of uh, the tax bill, if you if you will, and or, or tax notice, and then they are paid through the escrow directly to protect the lender's security interest in the property. So these are m- amounts that are, are not advanced by the bank. They are amounts that are being placed on deposit with the mortgage servicing company or lender, well, the lender or its agent, I should say, um, on a periodic basis to be held until such a, a, you know time as payments become due for these specific
2: items. Uh, the that is you you've, this is a an excellent question and i really appreciate you asking it because it allows us to talk about uh some areas that uh, i think many listeners may not uh, be fully aware of first uh there is a uh, the way it works in terms the way the law customarily works with respect to garnishing which is what you'd be talking about uh funds that belong to your debtor um you can garnish funds in two ways. One, you can garnish debts that are owed, obligations uh, that are owed to your debtor. So that is customarily how one garnishes a bank account because the, the the ordinary demand deposit bank account, a checking account, something like that is in the in the parlance of the law a debt that is owed by the bank to your debtor, and you can garnish a debt by garnishing the debtor, in other words, by garnishing the bank, so where you go to get the money is to the bank. You serve a writ of garnishment on the bank to get a debtor's bank account. Now, where there is money that already belongs to your debtor, in other words, it's already in your debtor's control, and is simply located somewhere other than in the possession of your debtor, which is what this situation sounds like, then, again, you can garnish uh, that money by garnishing the entity or person who is holding it. To think about a much simpler situation, uh, you can garnish any item of personal property. Money is personal property. So is a tennis ball. It's an item of personal property. If you sought to, if your debtor had a tennis ball, and you sought to get that tennis ball in order to sell it to to apply towards your debt, where you would go is is with a writ of garnishment to the person holding the tennis ball, and you would go get it. So money works the same way, and so ordinarily you would go to the place where the money is. Now, the one reason your question is so excellent is everybody knows where the tennis ball is because you can see it and touch it. These days, it's a little bit harder to know where money is located. Customarily, uh, in a situation like this, a court is going to look very strongly at where the institution manages that particular account what state that might be in, um, where the institution's headquarters may be located, the jurisdiction in which the debtor interacted with the institution. Many times those will be three different places. And the question usually in the context of uh, money that is being held since money is, by definition, these days, intangible, and you're talking about a book entry, basically, uh, and usually an electronic book entry that exists, if anywhere, <laughs> in cyberspace. Uh, the court will look at the jurisdiction that has the most contacts, the most interaction with this particular account. Uh, now, to your – the question you really want to know the answer to, which is, can I do this? And that is a question that is going to depend a good bit on the law of the particular jurisdiction that ultimately, uh, the court deems to, to control here. And it will have to do with whether the court deems that money still to belong to your debtor or, uh, whether it deems that money to have already been paid to the institution just pending the application um, to the taxes. That will be a question of what the loan documents say. It may be a question also of uh, statutory or other uh, case law obligations. What I would uh, recommend to you is do you, have, do you have good counsel there in Missouri or uh, in the jurisdiction where your judgment is, uh, was entered in the first place?
3: Well, the mortgage was originally signed in Missouri before a Missouri notary public. So, and and, and to answer your question about counsel, that's still something that's being, you know, looked into at this point. Um, But I have spoken to the trustee for the real estate investment company, and they have confirmed that there has been no waiver of the escrow clause. So the, the escrow payments should be being applied. It's just a matter of finding out whether it's the mortgage servicing company that is running the mor- the escrow or whether it's the lender. In either event, location in the state of Missouri, um, and since they are the trustee for the real estate trust, that would be sufficient to trigger them. If not, I would have to do the, the, the servicing company in the... Uh, but that, and that raises another question. In some states, if you garnish um, a, a, you know, an entity that is holding property for someone else and they either fail to respond to the garnishment or fail to turn over the funds as ordered by the court, in some states they become liable for the judgment itself. Would that be the case if this
2: escrow is not turned over? You are correct that in some states, uh, the law read literally does obligate the garnishee, the entity being garnished, for the entire debt, or can be read to obligate the garnishee for the entire debt. So, for example, again, going back to a very, very simple uh, example, if a debtor owes you you know let's say a million dollars and you identify a bank account that happens to have $10,000 in it and you garnish that bank account at the debtor's bank and the bank fails to respond to your garnishment there is at least arguably a, a the ability to hold the bank liable For the entire amount of the garnishment. Now, having said that, most courts in most jurisdictions are reluctant, very reluctant, to impose that kind of garnishment and that kind of liability on a garnishee. Um, I would be very careful about making that kind of an argument if the law of your jurisdiction supports it. By all means, you're entitled to make it, but I would be very, very careful about that and have very good counsel in that particular jurisdiction.
1: Ben, excuse me for interrupting, but we have about three and a half minutes to the break, and we're going to have to wrap up this uh, caller's question and answers before the break. Go ahead, gentlemen.
3: Okay, last question, and it's a fairly quick one. This mortgage, this deed of trust, also includes a second home rider, specifically stating that the is not allowed to utilize the property as a primary residence if he attempts to use it as primary or listed as primary residence and try to claim the homestead exemption in texas would that place his mortgage in default at which point i could work with the lender to accelerate the mortgage or force the sale because he's in default on the mortgage
2: like it. Again, that would be a question of the exact terms of the loan documents, but as you've described it, the he's promised his lender that he will not use this residence as his primary residence. Ordinarily, breaking a promise like that to your lender is a default, an event of default that uh, would allow the lender to pursue all of its remedies under the loan documents, including the collection of the full amount of the debt.
3: Okay so the the so the lender could force the sale of the property, which would mean that theoretically, if I a lean in there on those proceeds, that I could retain recovery from a forced sale
2: if necessary. Yes, the lender, assuming the lender has the right to foreclose on the property, and I'd be very surprised if it did not, and assuming this is an event of default, which again, it sounds like it very well could be, then yes, the lender would have that right.
3: Okay. That you've you've answered some very, you know, some very interesting questions, and I greatly appreciate the information that you've provided. And Joe, thank you again for providing such a, a, a wealth of information through your podcast. I just absolutely thank you, thank you for time. your call.
1: We appreciate having <laughs> you, uh, Ben. I just, are they, like I said, we got I about two minutes here. You uh, if you want to make any other comments on the receivership before we go to break.
2: I I just say that it's a very interesting and timely topic, and I certainly encourage your uh, listeners to consider it. There are various things to consider, such as the cost of the receivership. Uh, It's certainly something that that is best applied to either a a, a very well cash-flowing, good cash-flowing business or piece of real estate, uh, so, but it, it can be a very, very effective remedy.
1: All right, very good. Well, we'll be uh, coming back after the break and we'll need to cover alter eco's and break orders in the last 20 minutes of the show. So, at this time, we're going to go ahead and go to break and we'll be back with you folks in just a few minutes.
0: Did you know that 80% of civil judgments awarded to creditors are never collected? Be one of the 20% that successfully collects. Joe Dickerson is the nation's leading financial forensic expert. Contact Joe at 303-974-5610 or by email to joe at financialforensicservices.com for a free consultation about your judgment enforcement needs. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at FinancialForensicServices.com for your free judgment enforcement initial consultation with Joe Dickerson. Contact him today. Learn why 80% of civil money judgments are never enforced in the United States. Ensure that you have the best chance to actually recover your judgment and get the money the court awarded to you. Order a copy of Joe Dickerson's new book, Diagnostic and Prescriptive Judgment Enforcement, you can get your copy for just twenty four ninety five with no shipping and handling costs. Call 303-974-5610 or order via email from Joe at FinancialForensicServices.com. That's 303-974-5610 or Joe at FinancialForensicServices.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. To reach host Joe Dickerson or his guest this week, call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show.
1: Okay, Ben, we're back from the break. Uh, I think that was a... Very good conversation uh, with our caller on receiverships. We got to cover a, a lot of material. Thank you for your wisdom on those questions. And now let's go to the other two topics that we're trying to cover today. That's uh, alter ego and break orders. So let's talk about the alter ego first, but be sure to cover the break orders before we have to go off the air. Go ahead, Ben.
2: Okay. Uh, alter ego is a tool that I'm finding, and I'm sure you are as well, Joe, to be an increasingly important tool for judgment creditors in particular to use. In other words, um, if you've obtained a judgment against usually an individual, uh, the trick, as you know, the key is to be able to collect that judgment. Well, Your judgment debtor knows, in many instances, particularly if it's a sophisticated person, knows that. And oftentimes will have taken steps to protect him or herself from judgment collection. You hear people say they're judgment-proof. And there are legitimate ways to be judgment-proof, and then there are less legitimate or illegitimate ways to be judgment-proof. And one illegitimate way to do that is to hide behind the veil of an entity. In other words, uh, to pay all of your personal expenses out of the operations of a corporation or an LLC or a partnership or other entity that you've set up without following the customary corporate formalities. And I'm going to give you an example. Uh, let us say that you have a judgment against an individual who operates a hardware store, just to pick a business out of the blue and, and one that, that I've not had direct experience with. The individual certainly um, is entitled to continue to operate that hardware store and uh, to to pay himself uh, or herself a salary uh, or to take a, an ownership distribution out of the operations of that hardware store. And ordinarily, the way that works is the individual is either the uh, president or or other salaried employee of the hardware store, in which case, subject to the limits and restrictions, that may be imposed by state law on garnishments, the individual's judgment creditors can garnish all or a portion of the salary that the individual pays him or herself out of the hardware store. Similarly, if the, inter- if the individual is taking an ownership distribution out of the hardware store, the judgment creditor can have a, a charging order or garnishment or other appropriate uh, court remedy applied to that distribution and have it paid or have a portion of it paid toward the collection of the debt. And all of that is perfectly legitimate. There, there is nothing wrong with the individual operating the, the hardware store and taking an ownership distribution or salary, and there is nothing wrong with the judgment creditor garnishing that. Uh, that is all within the bounds of, of the law. What some judgment debtors do, however, is simply pay their expenses from funds owned, in, the, in this instance, by the hardware store, by the entity. In other words, they'll have a debit card or a credit card or a checkbook, or they'll just reach into the into the cash drawer and go to the grocery store, go fill up their car with gas, pay all of their personal expenses, take vacations, some live you know a very high life out of out of uh, entities that they're living out of that have a lot of resources. And they don't take a salary, they don't take an ownership distribution, so the traditional remedies available to a creditor are frustrated. They don't pay their debts, or at least they, they pay only the debts that they'd like to pay, and they claim that they don't have any assets. And that the assets that they're using for their personal expenses are really assets that belong to the hardware store, who is not subject to, which is not subject to the judgment debt. That is not a legitimate way to operate. And courts in an increasing number of jurisdictions have recognized this. I think all courts, or just about all courts, Georgia is an exception to this, but in most jurisdictions, courts permit judgment creditors to prove that there is not the proper separation between the individual and the entity. So that the individual's assets and the entity's assets are so commingled that it's impossible to distinguish the two, and in that circumstance, permit the judgment creditor to collect from the entity's assets the payment of its debt. Now, there are, particularly in the instance that I described, which the courts actually call reverse alter ego, and I'll explain that in a minute, uh, there are things to consider. The hardware store has legitimate other creditors, folks who have supplied suppliers that supply the, the materials that the hardware store sells, the electric company that supplies the lights. Uh, the hardware store may have other owners, other employees. And so there are limits, the judgment creditor, usually anyway, cannot come in um, and say, all right, well, just turn over all of the assets of the store to me and pay them towards my judgment, and let's just shut this store down um, and and pay everything to me. The courts normally fashion a remedy that permits a, a stream of payments out from the hardware store, usually in the amount that the courts would deem to be the salary or the amount that the debtor is drawing out for him or herself and have that paid over to the judgment creditor or paid over as though the judgment creditor had been able to exercise its traditional remedies of garnishments and charging orders and things like that. So that is um, what the courts call reverse alter ego, which is a very common uh, thing that judgment creditors end up pursuing in, in collection. The reason they call it reverse is the ordinary way in which uh, the alter ego is, is applied is when an individual owns a company and keeps the company underfunded so that company debts become very difficult to pay. If you think about, in a very simple situation, a, a delivery company that has one truck, um uh, often the owner of the delivery company uh will be drawing lots of money out of the out of the company to pay him or herself uh and but on paper, the delivery company will either own nothing or own only the truck so that if it has a wreck, there's nothing to collect so uh the thing that we're talking about is where the reverse of that where the individual claims to have no assets and all the assets belong to the company.
1: That's about the same process, whether it's going or coming, though, isn't it?
2: It is. It, it is a matter of proving that there's no separation or not sufficient separation between the individual and the company.
1: Okay. I I think that probably is all the time we're going to have to uh, go on alter egos. Is there anything you need to say to wrap that up before we move on to the break orders?
2: Not, not at all. I think that covered it uh, about completely. Appreciate it. All right, let's
1: talk about break orders or uh, orders that allow you to uh, take the assets directly. Go ahead.
2: And this is the fun stuff uh, for a judgment creditor. You've got to be careful. It can also be the dangerous stuff, but it's the fun (laughs) stuff. And a break order is quite literally what it sounds like. It is an order issued by a court directing the sheriff or other law enforcement officer in the particular jurisdiction to go to the debtor's residence or other property owned by the debtor and break the locks. That's why they call it a break order. If necessary, go into the dwelling or or other building and remove all property belonging to the debtor. And it's obviously a very effective remedy when done properly. It prompts very quick settlements. Uh, In many instances, when the sheriff has has appeared and begins removing items from someone's house, uh, that has a way of encouraging debtors to write settlement checks and to come up with money they previously claimed they did not have. And that is what a break order is. Yeah, we
1: often go with the sheriff when we get one of those orders and uh, retain a locksmith because we don't want to physically break in because we want to secure the premise before we leave, and we also have a uh, a bonded uh, storage and moving company to go to help uh, load up all the assets and pack them properly and uh, be sure they're well secured and then stored until the scheduled sale by the sheriff's department and uh, we inventory those things and put evidence stickers on them and number them and photograph all the assets that are being moved. I typically work with the attorneys and uh, the client, and before the break order is ever issued and we go to the premise, uh, we have an agreement with our client, oftentimes that we can forgive uh, all of the interest or. uh some of the uh, legal fees that have accumulated if we can get a 100% settlement on the face value of the judgment itself without uh, continuing with additional legal fees. And I have settled many a case uh, as a uh, moving company starts to move the uh, near and dear assets. As uh, Sun Wu said, take from a man that which he cherishes and he will follow your ways. So I I work on the debtor's psychographics and learn what's near and dear to their heart, and that's what we start loading first. And some of the listeners have heard me talk about uh, taking my debtor's uh, stuffed white polar bear because we knew that he was a big game hunter in uh, Alaska, and when we started loading that, uh, he came to me and said, What's it going to take to get you off of my uh, posterior? And we stood there and within 20 minutes uh, had a 100% settlement that was funded within 10 days, and we never had to load a single asset uh, out of his residence. And we've done those uh, both at homes and in offices. I've uh, done raids where I went to the airport and the attorney went to the home. And we took the plane, and she took the assets of the home, and by the time we were done with that, uh, before we were done with that, uh, we had a settlement from the good doctor who was our judgment debtor. So, Ben, we've got a uh, couple of minutes more to about three minutes more to wrap up, so go ahead and uh, talk about some of the other items involved with the uh, break orders right quick, if you would.
2: Uh, Certainly, and and you've hit uh, many of them. Couple of things to remember. One, obviously the execution of a break order, literally showing up at someone's residence or place of business or whatever it is with the sheriff, uh, with, uh, and the sheriff having the ability to remove items from the house can be a very tense situation. And so you want to make sure that you have good representation there, whether that's counsel, whether that's, Joe, in your case, someone uh, like you who is advising the the judgment creditor who has good judgment and good experience about how to handle some of the tense situations that can come up and has a good relationship with the law enforcement officers who are executing the break order, because it can be a very emotional thing. Uh, It is. the, The other is to make sure also that you understand what the sheriff is willing to do and not willing to do. While under the law of most jurisdictions, the sheriff can take all items that the debtor cannot demonstrate on the spot belong to someone else, and the law provides a mechanism for persons who claiming an ownership interest in those items later to come back and reclaim them. As a practical matter, the sheriffs will insist on an itemization of items that they are supposed to take, and that often can only be gotten by either deposing the judgment debtor or finding some other means of identifying a watch collection or an art collection or a polar bear or a stuffed polar bear, for example, as you alluded to, and, and itemizing that for the sheriff. Another right. thing is, is is cost, because if you do start seizing items, you've got to put them somewhere. Sheriffs often will insist not only on a bond to protect them liability-wise, but uh, also on you making arrangements in advance to cover the costs of storing the items that are seized, and so it it's one thing if you're going to seize a watch collection, that's relatively easy to store. If you're going to seize a grand piano, that's quite another thing. And Absolutely, be Ben, far- thank
1: you. Uh, we've we've run out of time. Uh, you've done a great job for us today. We appreciate it uh, so much. Uh, next week, folks, we're going to be talking about how to overcome your natural fear and anxiety uh, in testifying in court or in depositions. So I, again, thank Ben for his excellent, excellent help today. It's always a pleasure to work with you. And I want to remind all of our listeners out there, we'll be back at 5 o'clock next Wednesday afternoon. In the meantime, please remember, it's not what you win. It's what you recover that matters. Good evening. (laughs)
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. Be sure to join Joe Dickerson and another guest next Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll bring you more case studies and advice next week.